Let's pray. Thank you for this word. Thank you, Father, through the Holy Spirit, speaking through David. Would you help us to see the wonders of being in your presence forever and the greatness of Christ's work to ensure it forever? Be with us now by the Holy Spirit. Please help us. We ask in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Christians, most of the gifts, gifts that Jesus has purchased for you, you have not experienced yet. Most of the gifts he's purchased for your life, you haven't even yet experienced. Now feel the weight of what I'm saying. Because Jesus paid for you to receive all of the grace you'll ever get. He paid for it on the cross. And if you're a Christian, you've received the grace of having all of your sins forgiven forever. You've already received that. You've already received the gift of adoption as a child into God's family. You've already received justification, which means God's looked at your life and he said, righteous. But he's talking about the righteousness of Christ in place of yours. You already have that if you're a Christian. And you already have the Holy Spirit. So now feel the weight of what I just said. Still it is true that most of the grace that Jesus purchased for you, you have not experienced yet. That's why the Holy Spirit can be called in the New Testament a down payment. You know what a down payment is? It's when you're purchasing something and you give a small portion of the money, if you're buying a house, to let the bank know, I'm going to pay the rest. The rest will come. Here's a little payment up front so that you know it's going to happen. That's what the third person of the Trinity is in your life. Just the first installment of the grace God is going to bring to you. Ephesians 2, 7 says you've been saved. All of that. Forgiveness, justification, adoption into God's family, receiving the Holy Spirit as a down payment. That's all happened so that in the coming ages, God might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So what that's saying is, all the past grace you've received, which is already immeasurable, is so that forever and ever and ever, God might flood you with kindness. And by the way, he's going to have to make you immortal so, you, so that you survive the flood of his kindness. 
most of the grace you're going to experience, you haven't experienced yet. That's incredible. Psalm 16 is David's confidence that grace will not stop coming to him when he dies. But rather, he's confident that it is going to open the floodgates of grace on him when he dies in God's presence. So last week, we started a four-week series of seeing Jesus in the Psalms. It's our lead-up towards Christmas. We looked at Psalm 2 last week. Jesus is a conqueror. It's who he's going to be. And today we're looking at Psalm 16. Now, as you were following along with me, you notice the first thing David does is he presents a request to God. I mean, the, the start of this psalm is, is David asking God, please save my life. Preserve me, O God. Protect my life. Do you see that? Preserve me. For in you I take refuge. How would you be feeling emotionally if this was your prayer towards God? David's not being dramatic. His life was constantly in danger. So this is not that David cut himself while he was clipping his fingernails. He's constantly in danger and he's crying out, God, protect me, preserve me. How would you be feeling when you're praying that kind of prayer? Worried? Really anxious? Depressed? Heavy? Frantic? And yet, this is a happy psalm. It's a really happy psalm. David's going to find joy in this psalm. By the time we get to the end, you're just like, this, this guy is maybe the happiest person ever. But he starts by asking God to protect his life. I just want you to know the joy in this psalm that David has is not just for David. So it's written down because it's available to you. David pleads with God to rescue him, and then David will turn his mind to consider who God is for him in this life. We'll look at the things that David turns his mind to. We're going to talk about three in particular. Okay, so I'm, please save my life. And then he starts thinking about three things that God is for him in this life. And then the high point of this psalm, The highest point of David's rejoicing in this psalm is when David considers who God will be for him in death. Not just in life, but in his dying. And of course, when we get there, Jesus is going to show up in a big way. So let's start by looking at how David reflects on who God is for him. So the first thing David does, he prays, God saved my life. And then the next thing he does is consider the wonders of his relationship with God. And this is, before we even start looking at the psalm, you should do this. I mean, anytime you've got a worry and anxiety, a fear, go straight to God in prayer. And then don't just stop and start worrying about your problem. Turn your mind to who God is. It's one of the ways God's going to answer your prayer. Request help. Turn to see who he is. David comes out with joy. You will too. 
if this is how you deal with the Lord yourself. So here's the first thing David considers. David considers that without God, he has nothing good in this life. Verse 2, I say to the Lord, Yahweh, you are my Lord, means my master. I have no good apart from you. David knows that if he has anything good in this life, it's because of God. If you enjoyed a good meal this morning, it's from God. If you've got clothes to wear, it's from God. The book of James tells us any good thing we have as a gift, it comes down from the Father of lights. That's true. But David's saying more than that. He's saying more than simply all the good gifts I have come from God. He's also saying, if I don't have God, none of those things are good for me. I don't have anything good if I don't have you, God. So, let's say I'm being romantic. I'm on a date with my wife. We decide to go fancy. So we're at Chili's, and I say to her, these fajitas are amazing. But it wouldn't be anything if you weren't here. What am I saying? I'm saying you're the thing that makes this special. The fajitas are fine, but if I was sitting here by myself eating these fajitas, it wouldn't be the same. It's free of charge, guys. David is saying this to God, elevated. He's saying, God, you give me the good I have, but if you gave me everything I ever wanted and I didn't have you, I wouldn't have anything good. I wouldn't have any good. Now, you can't know what this experience is like in your soul if you've not been born again. To know, to know, not just to know it with your head, but to feel that all that this world has to offer can't satisfy me. Even if I had the whole world at my fingertips, but if I don't have God, I don't have anything. So much so that if I had everything in the world, I would be infinitely worse off than if all I had was God. That's what David's saying. And this really is who God is. He really is good. He's your good. He's my good. I think David wants us to be able to take these words up for ourselves and say, I've got no good apart from you. And if that's true, let's pursue God like this. Let's pursue him. Like we have no good apart from him. It's real easy to come here on a Saturday morning and say, yes, God's my treasure. He is the treasure without which nothing else is a treasure. It's real easy to say. It's really hard to get up early in the morning so that you can spend time with him. In his word. In prayer. Treating him like he is the good without which you have no other good. 
He's where all the good comes from, and he wants you to know him. He's offering himself to you. Now, David says the opposite is true as well. So God is his good. But he says if you don't have God, the opposite is true for you. Notice in verses 3 and 4, he compares those who trust in the Lord with those who go after other gods. He says, as for the saints in the land, they're the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. But the sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. So David's saying, I'm not going to join these people in worship when they're pouring out blood to false gods, when they're chanting the name of their false gods. I'm not going to join them. And he says, their sorrows will multiply. So that's the comparison here. David's saying, if you have the Lord, you have the fountain of all joy. You have the one who is good and from whom every good flows. But if you don't have him, your future is sorrow upon sorrow multiplied. Now, you may, for a few years, enjoy a seemingly pleasurable life pursuing another God. But David is reminding us it only ends in sorrow upon sorrow multiplied. David knows that God is his good, and that's what he calls to mind here at the beginning. Now here's the second thing David calls to mind. God is his inheritance. Verse 5, David says, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. So your portion, that phrase, it refers to your inheritance, what you're going to inherit. So if you're a child, you might inherit something from your parents when they pass away. Property, livestock, money. And David's saying, God is my inheritance. He's my inheritance. He's the thing I'm going to get out. Tyron pointed out in Bible study yesterday, he doesn't just say he's my inheritance. He says he's my chosen inheritance. This is not your parents giving you their 16-year-old cat or their old pair of work boots. He's saying, this is what I want. And that's what David means when he says the Lord is his cup. He's saying, he's what satisfies me. He is the future I am looking forward to. He's what I'm inheriting. He's my portion. He's what I want. He's what I drink from. That's who God is for me. And then he says, talking to God now, you hold my lot. Now, a lot is like rolling a dice. Do you guys know what dice are? Six sides. And it can land on any number, one through six. And so you're rolling it to figure out what you're going to do in the future. That's what the lot is. So if it lands on a six, we're going to move to Beirut. If it lands on a one, we're going to move to Canada. If it lands on a three, we're just going to stay here. Okay, that's, that's what it means to have a lot or flipping a coin, right? If it lands on one side of the coin, we'll go this direction. If it lands on the other side, we'll go the other direction. And David's saying, when I throw the dice or I flip the coin, 
God is the one who holds it. He holds my future. Every potential possibility that could happen to me in the future, God holds it in his hands. God controls the future. Know this, church. God doesn't just generally hold the future. He holds your future. Every detail of your future, God holds it in his hand. This is who God is. Really, it it is an essential part of who God is, that he controls the future. Don't let this one go. I don't want you to fight anybody, like fist fight anyone or scream at anybody over this. But this is what it means to be God. He holds the future. If you lose this, consider all you lose. Comfort that he's going to be there, that he's going to deliver on his promises. And when he says he's going to do you good, he can actually do it. Hold to this. He is a God who holds the future, your future, every detail of it in his hands. It's a precious truth for you. And David knows it. He goes on to say, verse 6, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. He's talking about boundary lines on a property. So he'd been talking about inheritance, and it would be like you get a phone call from somebody who says, hey, your grandfather just passed away, and there is a plot of property here back in your home country that's yours now. You're going to inherit it. And so you go back to your home country, and what are you doing? You're trying to figure out, okay, where do the boundary lines go for this property that I just inherited? Look at that. This whole field is inside the boundary line. That mountain, it's inside my property. That lake there, that pasture, it's mine. And that's what David is saying. God is for him. He looks at his future with God and he says, I have a beautiful inheritance. You do. If you have God, you have everything to look forward to. The lines have fallen for you in pleasant places. David knows that his future is in the hands, are in the hands, is, his future is in the hands of God. If you walk with Jesus, you can walk with confidence that he will work everything for your good. Everything. Everything that could possibly come your way, he will work to increase your future enjoyment of him. You have a beautiful inheritance. None of your pain, none of your hardships, nor anything else in the present or the future will ever be wasted. None of your pain will be wasted. If God holds it. If he's your inheritance, you have a beautiful inheritance. David also considers that God is where his wisdom comes from. Verse 7. He says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. That means wisdom. 
So God's the one who gives him wisdom. Then he says, in the night also, my heart instructs me. Now, he doesn't mean that God gives him wisdom in the day, and then at night, he gets wisdom from somewhere else. He listens, he listens to his heart. In the daytime, he's a Christian. At night, he's watching Disney movies. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying, God, you give me wisdom in your word. That's where wisdom from God comes from. And even at night when I'm laying in bed and all I've got is to meditate what's in here and in here, you're giving me counsel. I know that in this room, you need wisdom from God. I don't know exactly what kind of counsel you need, but I know that you need it. And I know that God tells us, promises us, he gives it to those who ask. Now David's going to tell us the secret for wisdom. Look at verse 8. He says, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he's at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. So David's saying, I live my life as though God is always here right in front of me. That's why I've set the Lord. In my mind's eye, I'm always thinking about God. I always have his truth right here in my face. It's like he's here all the time. Do you want wisdom, Redeemer? Set the Lord before you like that. That requires effort. To have God's word in your face Literally and figuratively, all the time requires effort. It's not just going to happen to you. Very active what David's saying here. I set the Lord before me. But David's telling us that's how you get wisdom. It's how you become a wise person. For many of us, thinking about God is a rare interruption to all the other things we're filling our mind with. David was preoccupied with God and his word. And this is how you become wise. It's how you're not shaken. That's what he says. I've set the Lord always before me. Because he's at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. And therefore, David is glad. Verse 9. After he's considered who God is for him, he's glad. Do you see that? But his gladness goes beyond the fact that God is good to him now. So he's asking God for help. He wants to be glad. So he's, he's sinking his roots down into who God is. That's watering his tree, the tree of his gladness. But the deepest roots that David has for his joy... And you need these to be your deepest roots. They'll never dry up. Is confidence of who God will be for you when you die. We, we all know what it's like to be enjoying something, like a meal or a vacation. And then we think about the fact that it's about to be over. And it starts poisoning our joy. You know what I'm talking about. You're on the last piece of steak. 
and, and you start to feel sad that it's about to be over. Or if you've been on like a four-day vacation, day three rolls around, it's been amazing. And you start thinking about the fact that tomorrow you're going to have to pack up, and it dampens your joy. That's what death does to this whole world. Either we're trying to hold anything painful at arm's length, or we're trying to hoard up as much happiness as we can get. Is that true for you, Christian? Is your life on a timer? Is your joy on a timer that's ticking down to zero? If you think it is, it's going to change how you live your life. That's how the world lives. This psalm will help you in the hospital. Twitter probably won't. Not a lot of people on Twitter when they know they've got an hour left. Netflix is not going to help. This psalm will. David knows that death is not the end of his happiness because he's confident that he will not stay dead. Are you afraid of death? Can you be confident about passing through it? You can be. God wants you to be confident. This is, this is pre-field training. Do you know what that is? Pre-combat training. If you're going to war, they'll put you in pre-combat training where they teach you how to hold a gun, how to take it apart, how to put it back together, how to load it, how to aim it. When you're in a battle, you do not want that to be the first time someone shoves a gun into your hand. You might be able to shoot, but not well. And you won't be able to keep shooting once you run out. Now, most of us, I hope, will not go to war and fight in battle. All of us will face this, death. And it will be as serious, more serious a battle as any as has ever been fought. And this, word of God, not just this psalm, the whole Bible is pre-field training to get you ready for that moment. David says, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure for, because, here's the reason. You, God, will not abandon my soul to Sheol. So Sheol is an Old Testament word describing a place you go when you die. Now, it could mean just the grave. David could also be describing a place where you continue to exist. But in the Old Testament, Sheol, for whatever it is, it's not a happy place. And David is saying, you're not going to abandon me there, God. Or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there's fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now let's talk about Jesus. In the book of Acts, so after Jesus has died, he's raised from the dead, 
Peter is preaching in Acts chapter 2, and he's going to quote this psalm, Psalm 16, as support for Jesus being raised from the dead. So Peter's going to quote this psalm, Paul's going to quote this psalm, in order to say, guys, it had to happen. Jesus had to rise from the dead. So I'm going to read Acts 2, starting in verse 24. Listen to how Peter quotes this psalm. He says, God raised Jesus up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for Jesus to be held by death. For David says concerning him, Psalm 16, I saw the Lord always before me, for he's at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. Now, hold on a second. I think in Peter's mind, when he's reading Psalm 16, he understands that David is mostly talking about himself. He's saying, God, you're not going to abandon me to Sheol or Hades. But then, when he sees David say, you will not let your Holy One see corruption, he goes, hold on. I think now David's talking about somebody else in the future. Verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing... Here's what David knew when he wrote Psalm 16. Knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, just like David, nor did his flesh see corruption, unlike David. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. So here's what's going on. When David wrote Psalm 16, he was writing about the fact that he would enjoy God forever. And death, not even death, would stop that. You can see the word forever in verse 11. He thinks he's going to enjoy God forever. But in verse 10, he brings up another person. Second half of verse 10. And he calls this person the Holy One. Now, David could have been talking about himself in the third person. He could have been saying, you're not going to abandon my soul to Sheol or your holy one, me, to corruption. But Peter reads this, and he understands something else is going on. Peter tells us that when David gets to verse 10, and he's talking about God's not going to abandon him to Sheol, David is thinking about a promise that God made to him. He tells us that in verse 30. David's thinking about the fact that God swore to him that one of his descendants would rule forever. And so David prophesies one of his descendants will live forever, defeating death, not rotting in the grave like the rest of us do. 
It's what it means to see corruption. He is confident in the fact that he will enjoy God forever. But his confidence that he will enjoy God forever is linked with the confidence that the Messiah, the Holy One, will defeat death someday. He won't rot in the grave like the rest of us. And so he knows he'll enjoy God forever. So that's, that's why Peter can read Psalm 16 and say, David died. His grave's here. We could open it up. His body did rot. So when he's talking about the Holy One not seeing corruption, he's referring to someone else. Paul's going to do the exact same thing in Acts chapter 13. He's going to say, David saw corruption, which means the Holy One in the second half of verse 10 is not David, but it's a promise that the Messiah would rise from the dead. David knew he'd enjoy God forever, that he would not be abandoned by God when he died, and he knew that it was because his great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson would someday defeat death. That's what David understood. Colossians 1 tells us that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead so that he might be preeminent first in everything. David sees that beforehand. One of my great-great-grandsons is going to be the firstborn. And that's how I know I'll be the second or third or fourthborn. Because he's going to pass through safely. Now let's get personal. You want to be happy. Everyone does. If I told you, no matter what you're going through today, no matter how much pain you're in, if you come find me after the service, I'll be up here up front, I promise you, I'll give you I'll tell you something that will give you the best afternoon you've ever experienced in your life. Now, you could walk out because you think I'm a liar. But if you didn't think I'm a liar, you'd be up here. Because everyone wants to be happy. All of us do. There's one place where happiness doesn't stop. It's when you're with God. This is where David's moving us, this whole psalm. Verse 11, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You want that. Pleasures forever. Fullness of joy. You won't find it in your job. You won't find it in that relationship. Even if it's in a healthy one. You won't find fullness of joy in money or anything else. Oh, if, I, if I could just reach inside of you and convince you of this. There's one place you can find it, and it's available to you. God is offering himself to you personally, where fullness of joy is found. 
And he's made it so that death won't cut you off from him, but will actually open up a tidal wave of enjoyment of him. That's why Jesus dies and is resurrected. He's accomplishing something for you. He's taking punishment. He's beating death so that just like it could not hold him. So Peter says, it was not possible for death to hold Jesus. It won't hold you either and keep you back from this tidal wave of joy. It's only if you trust him. Set him before you like David in faith. Set him before you. Look to God. Look to his Christ, the firstborn from the dead. Trust that he's the one that's provided the way. He is where fullness of joy and life is found. He will not fail to bring you through death into his life. Jesus has secured it for us firstborn resurrected. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. If this is true, if this is true, that fullness of joy, no emptiness, is found in your presence that is what everyone in this, need, in this room needs. It's what everyone in this country needs. It's what everyone on the face of this globe needs to be in your presence. And you secured a way into your presence through Jesus. Oh God, please work among us by your Holy Spirit. So that when it's our, our turn to die, we would have confidence that it will not interrupt our joy. We will not pass out of existence, nor will we be removed from your presence but that in Jesus, a flood will, will await us on the other side. Would you make us confident like that? Work in us and glorify Jesus in our confidence that he's defeated death. It's in his name we pray. Amen.